0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: Hello, my name is Justin Hamilton and welcome to the halfway point of season two of Big Squid. Halfway through this season of Big Squid, that must mean we are at the halfway point of David Bowie's final album, Black Star. And today, we're taking a look at the song, Sue, or In a Season of Crime. Now, uh, there are not only two versions of this song, but this one feels like it's potentially the most straightforward track on the album. But... As you know with Bowie, there are still a couple of diversions for us to take, including a brief look at the poetry of Robert Browning and a quick overview of Sarah Waters' 2002 novel Fingersmith. And then at the end, I'll share how I can draw an extremely long bow for my resume and claim that I make a blink and you'll miss it cameo in a David Bowie DVD. So let's dive into this song. Because I got the job, we'll buy the house, you'll need to rest, but now we'll make it. Bowie had told guitarist David Torn that he wanted to work with the band that worked on that record again, but not until after his next project, which was going to be a jazz album. This is fascinating for a couple of reasons. First, Bowie had flirted with jazz in the past. You can hear it hiding in plain sight amongst the playing of Mike Garson on Aladdin Sane or peppered throughout the album Black Tie, White Noise, in particular songs like Looking for Lester. Jazz is infused in the eight-minute track Bring Me the Disco King, that's the song that closes the reality album. And you can even hear jazz on the Lost Bowie album, The Buddha of Suburbia, in particular the song South Horizon, which recalls the type of music a young David Jones would experience at the local jazz clubs. As always, Black Star is a jazz album as much as Earthling is a drum and bass album. Both contain elements of what Bowie was listening to at the time, but in the end, they produce albums that are more difficult to easily pigeonhole. There are two versions of Sue. The first was created in collaboration with Maria Schneider, the award-winning composer and leader of the aptly titled Maria Schneider Jazz Orchestra. Schneider won a Grammy for Sue in the category Best Arrangement, Instrument and Vocal, And the song began as a demo composed of ideas that Bowie wanted to develop into a piece, and the two of them worked on it over a course of a few months. Schneider did so much work on the song, she is credited as a co-writer, and Sue also incorporates melodic elements of The Plastic Soul's Brand New Heavy, which also explains their co-writer's credit. Schneider is an artist who eschews predictability and embraces loose structures, which allowed Bowie to drop his lyrics in places that took the musicians by surprise. To augment her orchestra, it was Schneider who suggested Donnie McCaslin come and play on the track, and thus leading to his sterling work on the whole Black Star album. Producer Tony Visconti declared that the musicians fell on the side of truly modern jazz, and that there was nothing traditional about them. It wasn't until late that Schneider first heard the lyrics and was completely surprised that it was about a woman being murdered for cheating. At first worried that she might come under some criticism for contributing to a song about the murder of a woman, she also knew that Bowie wanted a narrative that was very dark, and in the end she thought it sounded rather good. The song was released towards the end of 2014 and was challenging for most listeners, with reactions being quite mixed. Unlike The Next Day, a sterling return to form full of catchy rock and roll songs, Bowie here was once again heading in a direction that took a lot of his fans by surprise. By the time Bowie McCaslin's band came around to re-recording the song for Blackstar, the new version was punchier and faster, infused with a desperate urgency that hit the listener with much more force. Guitarist Ben Mondo was brought in for overdubs and Bowie encouraged all the musicians to just go for it. You can hear the difference in the songs right from the beginning. Here's the opening to the Schneider version and then compare this to the opening you find on Blackstar. On the original version, his voice is muscular. You can imagine him chord in the maelstrom of musicians as they hit their notes. Here, Bowie is the eye of the storm, holding everything together. Bowie's vocal is brittle, pleading, and containing more nuance. Bowie says goodbye in a way that suggests he's closing the door. This is it. You've had your time, and now I have to go. The band plays on, and he's left to pick up the pieces as the forces he thought he controlled continue spinning onwards without him. In the end, you feel as if the Schneider cut is more intricate and subtle, while the Blackstar recording is more up front, no time for subtlety and not afraid to punch you in the face. Maybe the difference in the recording says more about where Bowie was at his place in time. In 2014, he was planning on making more than one album, but by the time he arrives to Blackstar, he wonders how long he'll have and chooses to rage against the dying of the light. Let's slip into the Squid Bits part of the podcast and take a look at the lyrics. As we discussed in episode 2 of this season, the lyrics of this song feel like they relate more to the title of Tis a Pity She Was a Whore. Here with Sue, Bowie's song opens with the hopeful. Sue, I got the job. We'll buy the house. You'll need to rest. But now we'll make it. Soon there is a hint that not all is right as the next verse opens with, Sue... The clinic called, The X-Ray's Fine, I brought You Home. Now the narrative devolves even further as we hear, Sue, you said you wanted writ Sue the Virgin on your stone, for your grave. Way too dark to speak the words, for I know that you have a son. Oh folly, Sue. This is where the song resembles the plot to the play, Tis a Pity She Was a Whore, a song about a woman who ends up pregnant, not to her husband, but another man, and not just any other man, but her brother. Here, in the song, the accusations are made. But is our narrator still willing to look after Sue? Possibly not, as the lyric continues, Ride the train, I'm far from home. In a season of crime, none need atone. I kissed your face. Sue, I pushed you down beneath the weeds, endless faith in hopeless deeds. I kissed your face. I touched your face. Sue, goodbye. Suddenly it feels like a song about a man justifying his murder of a woman, but by the time we come to the end, we're left wondering just how far these murderous impulses have taken him. Sue, I found your note that you wrote last night. It can't be right. You went with him. Sue, I never dreamed. I'm such a fool. Right from the start, you went with that clown. There's a possibility that our narrator has dreamed of death or planned a murder, but Sue could be gone already, leaving behind the man she never really loved. What's fascinating about this song is that we never actually meet Sue. She is spoken about more like an object, but these are all the ruminations of the narrator, and we don't know how reliable he is. There's a possibility that he's insane, or maybe he was attempting to confine this woman to a relationship she never wanted to be a part of in the first place. Then again, it could all relate to John Ford's play, and maybe the realisation that she was always with her brother is what makes our narrator finally break. Bowie was an avid reader of poetry and a fan of Robert Browning. There's a distinct flavour in Sue that recalls two of Browning's dramatic monologues, Porphyria's Love and My Last Duchess. In both pieces, the killer justifies the murder of a woman. Browning lived through most of Queen Victoria's reign, and he was an exemplary writer of the Victorian era and its ethos. Victorian culture was well known for its sexual restraint and solemn approach to conduct. The flip side of this repression is that there was a dark obsession with sex, evidenced in the fact that London at the time had more brothels than schools, with around 80,000 prostitutes working in them. In Porphyria, a man strangles his lover with her hair and then gazes down upon the corpse with her big blue eyes and golden hair. There are many interpretations, but the narrator's romantic egotism allows him to assume that she wanted to die and felt no pain. Porphyria is also the name of a group of diseases that affect the skin or nervous system, so there is a reading that suggests this is all about overcoming affliction, but I feel the reading of Murder hues closer to the song, Sue. In My Last Duchess, the speaker takes a tour of the artworks in his home and draws a curtain to reveal a painting of his late wife. While he allows the person he's speaking to gaze at the painting, he tells the story that while he loved her, she was flirtatious and this made him unhappy. So he has her murdered and now, as a painting that only he has the power to open to other eyes, it means that she can only smile for him. Finally, Chris O'Leary in his book suggests the name of Sue might be inspired by the 2002 novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, which also features on Bowie's recommendation of top 100 books. In the book, the character of Sue is a con artist who fails to realise she is caught in the machinations of a greater game where her identity might not be real or what she thinks it is. Definitely a book that's worthwhile reading. Lot more complex than we have time to go into now. But while we're here, let's go full horseshoe. And if we are to go full horseshoe on anything, there is a theory that the mirrored effect of Porphyria in the first half of the poem and the mirror of this in the second half after her strangulation is a tableau vivant, a popular art form in Victoria times where humans were used as art to recreate actual paintings and that the poem is an allegory where both characters imitate the process of artistic creation. Once art is created and or published, it is dead, forever, unchanging. Is this what Bowie was thinking about with his final album, and a possible inspiration for him to re-record Sue? We go from a recording that is muscular in the way he sings, to a more brittle way of presenting the lyrics, on the Black Star version, but the music's juxtaposed. the the music is gentler, more subtle in its original composition, and in the Black star version, it just comes out so manicured, it's so full in its richness. Did he know that once he was gone, the album would forever be unchanging without him around to perform it live or remix into new formats? Did he know that once the album was out there, it too was like something dead, forever unchanging. This is what it was going to be. Is this how he felt? Was this what he was thinking as he re-recorded this whole song? Maybe this is a horseshoe that goes too far. Maybe we're reaching here. But it's interesting to compare the two versions of the song and try to work out what he might have been thinking and why the inspiration took him in this direction. This is a shorter podcast uh, today, but uh, before I go, as I always highly recommend you to do, please check out O'Leary's books Rebel Rebel and Ashes to Ashes. And of course, my personal favourites, it's almost my Bowie Bible. It's Nicholas Pegg's The Complete David Bowie. Can I also recommend reading Robert Browning's Dramatic Monologues, Porphyria's Lover and My Last Duchess? Both fascinating reads, even if they are leaning on the dark side. Let's finish with this. This is my spending way too much time alone thought. When this song was first released, it defied interpretation and it took me years of listens before I could get my head around any possible meaning. For me, this song is about a deluded man who knows something isn't right and is planning his vengeance when he suddenly realizes his victim is one step ahead of him, already gone, leaving him behind, impotent with jealousy foolishly tearing up his ridiculous plans. Is this a correct reading? Who knows? Over the years, my favourite Bowie songs have taken on a life of their own. Their meaning shifting with my shuffling of years. One of my favourite Bowie songs is The Motel from the Outside album. I've never had an interpretation of what The Motel means. It always seems to be moving or it changing from listen to listen, month to month, year to year. But I know the feelings it draws out of me, and it has long mesmerised me. Ah, the amount of times I've listened to it during the day. Putting it on, putting headphones over the ears, closing the eyes, letting myself imagine what's happening in this song. I love listening to it at night with the lights off, wrapped in a blanket, letting every subtlety of the recording creep into my subconscious. I was so jealous of hearing bootleg recordings from the 90s when he would sometimes play this song live. Those barren years of Bowie touring Down Under were my main inspiration to head overseas and see the reality tour. No longer would I wait to see if these worldwide tours would come to Australia. I wasn't prepared to miss out again. I booked four concerts for the end of 2003 that would allow me to see Bowie in the UK, beginning in Dublin, heading to London, and then finishing up in Glasgow. As an aside, I managed to squeeze in Radiohead at Earl's Court. This was around the time of Hail to the Thief. So over the course of eight days, I saw five concerts, and that's possibly the best eight-day stretch of my life. I landed in Dublin the morning of November 23, 2003, and I attempted to sleep that afternoon, but as you can imagine, I failed this one act quite extensively, way too excited for the concert. I lined up early and was told that they were filming that show, so there was a possibility we might experience extra songs. And they weren't wrong. That night, Bowie powered through 35 songs, and I was rapt with every single one of them. I was up the front, almost centre, standing between and slightly behind two different groups of friends against the barriers. That night, Bowie and his band presented us with hits, Pixie's covers with a touch of Bolan, a couple of Iggy covers and some deep cuts. Bowie was relaxed and his band was magnificent. I was particularly excited to see Earl Slick after all these years, having seen him back in 1983 for the Serious Moonlight concert. There was sweet Mike Garson, his playing unmistakable after all these albums. I was also overwhelmed by Gail Ann Dorsey's unfathomable cool presence on stage, powerful and funny, nailing the bass and the vocals. Her ability to play John Deacon's bass line on Under Pressure while nailing Freddie Mercury's range was one of the most stunning moments I've experienced at any live performance. I felt it hit me in the chest, and by the time the song ended, I felt like I could have crumbled to my knees. And then, the very next song, the piano kicked in, and Bowie launched into my favourite song, Life on Mars. To be honest, it was all too much. It wasn't until after the song finished that I realised I had cheeks damp from tears. I was so happy, and then a few songs later, the unthinkable happened. Bowie introduced this next track as a love song to Desperation and launched into the motel. I honestly didn't think there was any chance of seeing this live, but there he was performing it right in front of me. And get this, there were still 13 more songs to come from Loving the Alien to I'm Afraid of Americans to Heathen the Rays and Ending with Ziggy Stardust. By the time the concert was over, I staggered back to my hotel, blown away by what I'd just experienced, so excited to know that I had another three concerts to come. Many months later, when they released the reality DVD, I immediately bought it, knowing they filmed over two nights in Dublin, so I was curious to see which songs made the cut from my concert. I was thrilled to see the motel made it, as well, of course, of Life on Mars. And then during Under Pressure, as Gail Ann Dorsey hits those notes and the camera catches Bowie looking back at her as they finish the song together. If you look down out into the audience, you can see my little head popping up, overwhelmed with emotion at what I'm witnessing. It makes me laugh every time I see it. I'm glad they caught me during Under Pressure and not weeping with joy during Life on Mars. Who wants to be ugly crying on a Bowie DVD? But there I am, looking up at the great man, duetting with the wonderful Gail Ann Dorsey. And that's why I feel like I can cheekily claim, as seen with David Bowie on the Reality Tour DVD. Thank you for giving up your time and listening to this podcast. It is genuinely appreciated. If you're enjoying this season of Big Squared, would you please give us a good review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? This has quite clearly been a labour of love, and it also allows me to kind of block out the weirdness of the rest of the world. There's more projects that are going to be coming up, but it's been nice to come back to this particular podcast, work on this, and... We'll have more things to share with you very soon that will be coming along uh, in the next couple of weeks. I also really hope that this is giving you either a new appreciation of David Bowie's Black Star or maybe it is the first time you've listened to it and uh, is opening you up to a whole new world out there. Either way, uh, thank you very much for being a part of this. I look forward to your company for our next episode Episode where we will be jumping into the very peculiar track five of Black Star. Until then.